Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. In this program, we visit concepts of evolution and intelligence, some of which were raised recently after our series on near-term human extinction. What is intelligence? What kind of intelligence do non-human creatures have? What are the different levels of intelligence that can be found in single cells or in vertebrates or even human beings? Neurosurgeon Dr. Frank Fertosik, author of The Genius Within, Discovering the Intelligence of Every Living Thing, discusses these and other questions about learning in all species. Fertosik considers the learning that occurs through evolution and alteration of the genetic structure and the learning of the way we commonly think about it. This is done by studying or by experience. When Dr. Frank Vertosik and I visited by phone from his office in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in early 2002, we began when I asked him to describe different levels of intelligence and the development of intelligence in invertebrates. best to just define what I mean by intelligence, the ability to learn from your past experiences, store that information, and apply it analytically to problems that you've not seen before. They may be similar to what you've seen before, but not exact. When you say store that information, we store it as we learn, human beings consciously learning or subconsciously learning, but you also include the storage of information that our ancestors have obtained, so we have it genetically. Yes. I, I, in the book, I break down that there's basically two types of biological learning. One is genetic, and one is what I broadly call non-genetic. Non-genetic learning is what we would consider learning in human terms. I learned the alphabet. I learned to read. That is something that is not stored at the genetic level. When I die, my knowledge of, uh, of uh, neurosurgery, which is my profession, will die with me. It is not something that I can uh, leave to my children genetically. So non-genetic learning is that transient type of learning that's stored in individual organisms uh, in, in uh, ways that, that basically die off and that organism dies. Genetic learning is information that is stored at the gene level. And what I stress in the book is that genetic learning is still learning. Uh, it is still it is learning that is accumulated by the species or the population of animals through trial and error and over many generations, but it is still learning and it's still information that's being stored in some digitized format, this specifically the DNA sequences. Uh, and, it, and so basically the genes of our body represent an a encyclopedia, a diary, so to speak, of the learning uh, that our, our uh, species has undergone over the millions of years that, that led up to us. Invertebrates like uh, bacteria, uh, single-cell animals, uh, flies, uh, the simpler, so-called simpler creatures. I don't like that term because they're really not simpler. Uh, but what we would consider lower animals, that sort of uh, uh, animal learns predominantly genetically. Uh, they have very, very short generations, a bacteria, 20 minutes, a fly, maybe a few weeks. Uh, and so they can have 20, 30 generations in a day or in a year, 
And so they have a great deal of genetic adaptability, and they can learn new things at the genetic level within months or, or a few years, uh, 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 perhaps as much information as, as our brains can assimilate in, in months or years. How does that genetic learning occur? That genetic learning occurs through what we call Darwinian evolution. Basically, uh, the creatures have um, random mutations or perhaps not so random mutations in their gene structure. It yields uh, variations, and those variations are put to the test in the laboratory of life. Uh, whether that mutation yields a benefit or not. If it does, then that, that mutation or altered gene is, is perpetuated. Uh, and, and indeed, one of the things I stress in the book, that's mu much how non-genetic learning proceeds, too. We tend to think that uh, when we learn something, uh, uh, it's a very directed process. It's not a random process. But when you think about how our brains learn, it's often, again, through trial and error. It's through randomly generating possibilities and allowing uh, the laboratory of life to say, well, this works for you and this doesn't work for you. Uh, that's how a lot of human progress has been made, again, through through trial and error, trying out random possibilities, and then and then keeping the ones that work, throwing out the ones that that don't work, and and that's uh, you. Know, it's been called evolution, but basically it's learning. Evolution is a learning process. It's learning through time what variations uh, in living structures uh, will work, uh, and rejecting the ones that don't work. But then, how is that learning that uh, occurs put into the genetic structure? Well, let's take two examples. Let's take a gardener or a beekeeper who wants to learn what sort of plants yield the best honey to feed his bees. And then you have the bee population, a wild bee population, that is trying to do the same thing, trying to learn what pollen yields the best honey. The beekeeper basically will uh, try uh, trial and error in his mind, different plants, say, well, I'll try this plant, I'll try this plant, I'll taste the honey, and I'll eventually come to the conclusion, in my mind, in my brain, I'll make a decision that this is what's the best honey, and then that will be stored in my brain until I die or until I write it down or tell someone else. Uh, now, you look at the bee population, on the other hand, uh, certain bee populations uh, will dedicate themselves to trying certain plants. They're not very successful at it. They die off. Another species of bee or another variation of bee tries a different plant and it makes a little bit better honey, and you get another species of, of bee that eventually hits upon the best plant, makes the best honey, and eventually drives all of its other competitors out of business. Those other competitors die off, and you're left with a bee population that now genetically is drawn in their genes to the best plant. So on the one hand, you have the bee population, which has learned it at the level of the gene and will pass that on to future bee populations through its genes. You have the beekeeper who he, that information will uh, die uh, with him unless he writes it down, which is interesting. In a, in a sense, our written language has taken over for the, the genetic language. We are able now with written language to pass information on from one brain to another, similar to one organism can pass genetic information uh, one to another. But in both situations, the bee population learn what's the best plant, the beekeeper learn what's the best plant, only the beekeeper stored it in terms of, of electrical signals in his brain, the bee population learned it by uh, mutation and eventually storing that information at the level of the gene. But both populations learned, in a sense, what worked best for them. They just learned it in different ways. They learned it and stored it in different locations in their organisms. Uh, but it's basically information 
directed towards a goal that is learned uh, to the benefit of the organism. That's basically what we call intelligence. You've said that genetic learning is random and sometimes not random. How is it not random in your B example? Well, in the bee example may be a, not a good example because the bee populations, like large organisms, probably it is largely random. Uh, in organisms such as bacteria, see, bees have brains, so they are able to undergo some sort of neurologic learning. So they're not as totally dependent upon genetic learning as, say, single cells or, or bacteria. Bacteria have no way to learn other than through evolution. They have no way to learn other than through mutation. So if you look at bacteria populations, they seem quite aware that their only way to, to exercise their intelligence is through their genetic structure. They don't have brains. They don't have any other way to do it. So consequently, uh, they don't rely totally uh, on randomness. Um, uh, they, for example, a bacteria population can, can increase its mutation rate a thousandfold depending upon the situation that it's in. In other words, when it needs to put its thinking cap on, for example, when bacteria are faced with a new antibiotic, they often will increase their mutation rate as if to say, look, we know that we rely on mutations uh, to do our thinking, uh, and we're pro po we have this new problem that is facing us. We better start evolving a little bit faster than we've been doing, you know, uh, uh, when, when things are good. Not only that, bacteria may have the ability, it's still controversial, to increase their mutation rate in specific genes depending on the situation. For example, bacteria that are starving may increase their mutation or evolutionary rate in genes that have to do with eating and metabolism. In other words, they say, well, you know, we're really hurting here. We're going to die. Uh, we're starving. We need to come up with some genetic solution to this problem. How do we know this? How do you find this out? Well, for one thing, we know, for example, they have identified um, mutator genes in bacteria that, that control the rate at which DNA is repaired in these cells. So remember, all cells undergo mutation. We can't help that in terms of cosmic rays and environmental uh, heat, environmental stresses. All of those things cause damage to DNA. DNA, like any molecule, is prone to damage by external sources. So there is a certain baseline mutation rate that all of our cells undergo. That's why every living cell has the ability to repair uh, genetic mutations. And it's so, they're so good at it that, that theoretically cells should have a zero mutation rate. In fact, there are, ironically, mutant forms of bacteria that, that will not undergo mutations. Uh, they are impervious to x-rays. They're impervious to ultraviolet light. They just will not mutate. So the presence of mutations in, 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 in all organisms is, is, a, is a conscious thing of living cells. In other words, it's not an unavoidable thing. They have the capacity to repair their DNA 100% uh, with 100% efficiency. They choose not to do so because they know that those mutations are their source of learning. In other words, if they never try anything new, if they never have any random alterations in their genetic structure, they will never be able to evolve. So in a sense, an organism with a zero mutation rate is, is genetically stupid. It can't make any progress. So all living things tolerate a given amount of mutation. And we know, for example, by looking at the mutation rate of bacteria under different stress situations, for example, in the lungs of a person receiving antibiotics, the mutation rate is a thousand times higher than a bacteria you may find in soil uh, that is not being exposed to antibiotics. But a bacteria, when you starve them, 
uh, in culture, they become more prone to mutations. So the natural conclusion is that, that, that they know that mutations is the way they think. And when they're present, presented with a problem, they say, look, we, we've got to think faster. We've got to evolve faster. We just can't sit around and die. We've got to, you know, mutations are risky. We may real mutants that, that are useless and, and lethal, but when faced with certain extinction, that's the only choice that they have. But isn't, isn't it the case that uh, if it's a well-fed bacteria, the mutants aren't going to survive on uh, what it, on the food supply, whereas if it's a poorly fed bacteria, the mutants may survive on a different food supply. Well, that's correct. That's why when in, when when times are good for bacteria, they turn their mutation rate way down, and they say, "Well, there's no point, you know, in in altering, tampering with ourselves, you, you know, when when times are good." But what I'm asking is, do they turn it down, or is it just that the mutants uh, die because there's no food available for them? No, they actually turn it down. I mean, you can measure the rate at which they mutate. As a matter of fact, how do you measure it? Uh, how do you measure it? You you just measure the the basically the instability of the genetic structure. And plus, remember they they have identified how bacteria do this. There are specific mutation genes that when those genes are turned on, the the, the bacteria mutate faster, and when the germs are genes are turned off, they mutate slower. So they can look at at the rate at which this gene is turned on or off. So they can actually look at cells as they turn up and down uh, their mutation rate. Uh, I'm not a molecular biologist. Uh, I, I don't know the, the, the nitty-gritty details, but it is possible to measure the actual rate uh, that bacteria are undergoing mutation and target those genes where those mutations are occurring. Uh, and uh, there is a, a strong contingent in the, in the uh, bacteriological community that feels that bacteria are, do consciously control the rate at which they evolve in very specific areas of their gene structure, uh, and uh, that's how they manage to survive all these years. So they're not as stupid uh, as we think they are. They're, they're very smart, but they think at a level, namely the, the gene itself, they think at a genetic level, they don't think at a neurologic level. But that's one of our biases. We think that things that think at a genetic level are stupid, that things that uh, rely on instinct and, and, and evolution are basically uh, 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 idiotic, and only creatures with neurologic brains that use non-genetic learning have anything that we would call true intelligence. I'd like to discuss uh, that bias that we have, and as well as uh, why more developed animals, vertebrates, humans, elephants, uh, animals that take... Uh, uh, longer to create a new generation, uh, learn differently. But first, I want to say that this week we're talking with Dr. Frank Vertosik from his office in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He's the author of a recent book called The Genius Within, Discovering the Intelligence of Every Living Thing. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Uh, Frank, um, where does that bias come from? that we think that uh, what we call lower animals or animals that are not human uh, have less of an ability to learn? Well, I think it's a bias that we have. It's not just an emotional bias. There is a certain emotional bias in, our, in the sense that humans equate intelligence with ethical worth, um, obviously. We don't 
uh, we, we, we award ourselves the highest role in the uh, universe because we consider ourselves alone to be the most intelligent creatures. We really have no claim to being uh, the greatest in the eyes of God, so to speak, other than our, our, what we perceive as our higher intelligence. And we're not the fastest animals or the most successful animals by any stretch of the imagination, but we think of ourselves as the smartest. So, uh, so in a sense, that uh, we do not like to acknowledge the way other animals think as being equivalent to, to ours. And, that, and that's sort of a chauvinism that's born of, uh, of our arrogance as a species. But some of it is basically simply the fact that we don't comprehend the realm in which other creatures think. Uh, for example, um, uh, I don't, for example, understand the, the genius of Mozart because I don't know much about music and I don't understand how somebody can just listen to uh, a piano concerto and write the notes down. Uh, I don't ha- I don't think in terms of music, and so I discount uh, the genius of musicians. I don't understand it. Likewise, bacteria who solve their problems, for example, at a molecular level, we don't consider that problem solving because we have no intuitive uh, concept of that. But when you think, for example, uh, what what a bacteria that solves the riddle of penicillin does, uh, uh, you have a bacterial species that's faced with an antibiotic. They take a three-dimensional molecule and figure out some enzyme that can basically uh, cripple that molecule. If our laboratories, if our drug laboratories do that, we give them a Nobel Prize. If a bacteria does it, we say, ah, that's just simple chemistry, evolution, whatever. Um, so there's a bias in terms of a problem bias. We believe solving calculus problems and writing symphonies and building buildings reflects intelligence, um, but we don't look at building beehives or uh, solving the riddle of antibiotics or, or indeed uh, figuring out new food supplies or, or, or new territories to live. Those problems that all living things solve every day we just discount as being, well, you know, that's just survival, that's just evolution. Uh, but building this nice steel building, now that's intelligence. And, and that's where our bias comes in how we define what problems that are solved as, as requiring intelligence and what problems that are solved are, are totally outside of our realm of experience. Well, let's talk then about uh, the larger species and look at the uh, speculative law that you formulate in your book in which you say the sum of a species' genetic and non-genetic learning capacities is the same for all species on Earth. Can you explain that in, in relationship to uh, uh, the single cell and the human? Yes. Uh, what I'm saying is that there's two types of intelligence. One is genetic, the ability to, to learn things at the level of your genetic structure, and, and, and non-genetic intelligence, what we would call neurologic learning, what brains do. Uh, we, large animals such as humans are genetic dunces. Uh, we have one generation every seven, every 25 years. Each person, uh, when we give birth, maybe one or two uh, uh, births at a time. We have a very low capacity to evolve genetically, uh, but we're endowed with a huge brain. And that's generally true. The bigger brains you have, the, the more difficult it is to develop those organisms and, and, and the, the longer their generational times and, and the, the slower they are to evolve. Then you have creatures such as insects that have very little neurologic capacity, but an immense ability to evolve genetically. Uh, and so we tend to define intelligence only in the non-genetic or neurologic realm, and that makes us look like geniuses. But when you take into account the sum total of the ability to learn, both through evolution and genetic modification and neurologically, uh, that, that sum is probably pretty comparable among all species, because otherwise... Um, one species would become dominant. 
Uh, and and uh, for but all wouldn't our girls, you say that in many ways uh, some species have become dominant? The, the dom- that may be true. The bacteria, in, the ba- human that, beings. Well, I mean, if you look at the 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 what we define by dominance. Uh, I, as a quote I use in the book, which I'm very fond of, is by the biologist Huxley when he was asked what 70 years of studying biology had taught him about God. And he thought for a minute, he says, well, God's very fond of beetles, um, which wasn't quite the answer that anyone expected. That if you look at success rate as a species, humans are by far and away not a very dominant species on this planet. Uh, more, as you point out, the biggest biomass uh, on the planet are plants and bacteria. And among animals, insects uh, constitute more species and more living matter on Earth than any other uh, uh, form of life. Mammals tend to be a very uh, uh, poor cousin to invertebrates uh, and lower, so-called lower, lower animal forms than than uh, 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 you know anything else. Uh, so yes, you're, you're right. If we if we define success, intelligence uh, as a means of success, we're by and away not the most intelligent creatures on the planet. Now, we put down a lot of asphalt roads and buildings, um, but in terms of numbers and, and success, we're not the most dominant species by any means on the planet. And in fact, the so-called stupid life forms, such as insects and bacteria, are actually dominant. And that's one of the points of the book is maybe they're not. How stupid could they be if they've been around 10 times longer than us, and they're 10 times more plentiful than us, and they're going to be around probably a lot longer than we are. So they, they can't be all that stupid. Well, let's... Uh take this to the human species and uh, talk about nature versus nurture. Uh, which do you feel has a greater control? Me personally, probably uh, uh, nature. Uh, I think most of our uh, capacity to learn the types of problems that we can solve and so on are basically genetically determined. And, and again, we, that doesn't mean necessarily that we're, we're destined to be killers or something like that. But what I'm saying is that humans are not different than any other animal in that what we learn is basically constrained by the anatomy of our brains. Uh, uh, for example, um, uh, an ant. You can teach an ant to run a maze f- faster than you can teach a mouse to run a maze. So a- ants are basically better learners at maze running than mammals. Uh, so it's despite having these minuscule brains, but that's because that what ants do is basically search for food. So maze running is basically what they're good at. Um, you can't teach an ant, for example, to learn symbols. They're not very good at that. Humans, on the other hand, are very good at learning symbol-based things. Um, but we're not as good at basically, for example, navigating a maze uh, or navigating uh, geographic areas as well as an ant or a bird. So our, our, our ability to think geographically and three-dimensionally is probably inferior to many other species. So we, we tend to forget that what we're able to learn and what we're able to think about uh, is, is determined genetically. It is not determined, and we're hamstrung basically by the genetic structure of our brains, uh, much like other species are. But you do describe uh, play as a way of reinforcing uh, uh, our genetic directions or our genetic abilities. Play in the, in the young child, for example. Boys playing with sticks as guns, or perhaps girls playing with dolls. Well, that, that's true. We, we have less instinct than, say, lower mammals or other, uh, you know, more, more less neurologically advanced mammals. And, and, and in a sense... Um, uh, we, our brains are, are so divorced from instinctive behavior, or we're so relatively divorced from instinctive behavior, uh, that we have to 
uh, a practice the simplest acts of survival, whereas uh, a uh, uh, an insect is born knowing how to walk, an insect is born knowing how to feed, uh, whereas we these things have to be taught and practiced by higher mammals such as primates, uh, and so we have this idea of play uh, uh, being. Um, uh, uh, what playing is is basically practicing things such as walking, running, fighting, uh, uh, eating, uh, competition, the things that we that other animals are born knowing. So there's no question we're born knowing uh, less than say a mouse or an insect is known uh, to uh, be born with. Uh, ironically, uh, the the only other uh, uh, creature, only invertebrates that have been known to engage in playing, if if uh, if that could be called playing, are octop- octopi and squids, who have the highest or the largest brains of the invertebrate population. Um, so so big brains basically mean you have to play around in order to uh, uh, learn how to do the most basic things. Dr. Frank Fratosik, author of The Genius Within, I want to ask you about your other book, Why We Hurt. Can you tell us briefly why we hurt? We, we hurt, well, the simple answer is because pain is a great instructor. It teaches us what we should uh, get into and what we shouldn't get into, uh, what activities uh, are dangerous and, and what are not dangerous. Uh, the, the obvious example is if you get stung by a bee or wasp, you learn in the future to avoid them. It's the uh, simple learning experience. It's simple learning experience. But as I, the point of the book uh, is that most pain that humans are afflicted by can't be so easily explained as a learning phenomena. The, the, the perfect example is migraine. Migraines afflict a huge percentage of the population, including me, uh, they're very painful, and if they're supposed to teach us something, I- I've yet to learn it, uh, other than perhaps learning that Tylenol helps me better than anything else. But I, if, if that is a, a learning experience, if that pain is supposed to be teaching me something about my environment to avoid, I don't know what it is. And, and I explore in the book many types of pain that we just don't understand. Childbirth, for example, a natural process that, that is essential to the procreation of humans, it yet is rated as one of the most painful experiences people can undergo. Why is that? We, we simply don't know. Well, Dr. Frank Vertosik, I want to thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, can you take a minute and tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately? Yes, I, I think that uh, certainly related to the book that we're talking about here would be Linked. Uh, it was a book by, uh, I'm, I'm mispronouncing his name, Bar- Barbassi. Uh, he's at Chicago. He's a, a professor there. And it uh, basically explores uh, networks, which is a pr- topic I talk about in my book. Uh, and uh, uh, it is uh, an exploration of the connectedness of all uh, of society, of all the living realm. And I think if people find my book interesting, they'll find uh, that book uh, much along the same lines, uh, a little bit different, but uh, uh, I look more at biological things. Uh, uh, the link to looks more at uh, social structures, uh, the Internet, uh, uh, the, the world economies, and basically explores how um, world economies and the Internet really aren't that much different than the same processes that led to living the life on Earth itself. Well, Dr. Frank Fratosik, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Dr. Frank Vertosik is the author of The Genius Within, Discovering the Intelligence of Every Living Thing. The book he recommends is Linked, How Everything is Connected to Everything Else and What it Means for Business, Science, and Everyday Life by Albert Laszlo Barabasi. 
This program was recorded in October 2002. Curious has over 500 archive editions on our website, radiocurious.org, with new programs published weekly. You may stream, download, subscribe to our podcast service, and share them as you wish. They're all free. We appreciate your thoughts, ideas, and comments about our programs and enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The phone is 707-462-6541. And the address is 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. Christina Onestead is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.